Today's episode of Something to Wrestle With is brought to you by StarCast on Fight.com. What are you waiting for? If you haven't already, make plans to join us. If you can't be in Chicago next weekend, you've got to be on Fight.tv or pre-order right now at StarCastOnFight.com. You're going to get a dozen shows. Not only will you hear from the one and only Cody Rhodes, you're going to hear from John Moxley. And of course, the one and only CM Punk. I can't believe he's doing something with wrestling again. He's going to be with us at StarCast. You don't want to miss all the live action. You get Mick Foley, you get Dane Malenko, you got Tony Schiavone. It is the place to be. It's StarCastOnFight.com. Check it out right now. That's StarCastOnFight.com. You're going to get Alive being the elite mailbag. You're going to get the all-out press conference. You're going to get Dean Malenko sitting down with Tony Schiavone. You're going to get the women of AEW. You're going to get Joey Ryan. You're going to get Mick Foley. It goes on and on. It's a dozen shows for one low price, both live and on demand with unlimited replays. Check it out right now. Starcastonfight.com. Don't forget there's two R's in Starcast and fight is F I T E. That's Starcastonfight.com. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle with Bruce Bridget. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? Yeah. I like it. Wonderful. Thank you, Will. There so, you go. Man, I'm fired up about today's show. We're, we're going back in time to SummerSlam 1999. The 20 year anniversary of the show was yesterday and it went down at the target center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, huge crowd, 17,370 fans, 15,973 of those were paying 557 grand at the gate and another $168,000 in merch sales. At this point, this has got to be the biggest SummerSlam ever. Does it not? I well, I, depends on how you look at it. It may have been the biggest. I'm pretty sure, probably as far as the gate goes and everything. But when you go back and you look at the first one in Madison Square Garden, that was a pretty big deal, at least for me from a nostalgia standpoint. So, uh, being in Minneapolis and doing that, it was it was pretty nice. And this also marks the same day that uh, we met gentlemen that would become integral <laughs> in the world of fighting sports uh the one and only brock lesnar at this show so a really? lot, lot going on wow i didn't know that this is going to be uh fun to dig into did let, let me guess gerald briscoe found him and brought him to the show and i mean he's local from the area so how, how does that come to be how does brock lesnar wind up at this show jerry briscoe and brock's coach were very big 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 friends and um all through college and throughout their whole life. And Briscoe knew Brock's coach and obviously had been scouting Brock for some time. And it was an opportunity for Brock to come on down, check the product out firsthand. And he was there and I guess he liked what he saw. I know that we definitely liked what we saw because nobody could walk by the backstage area without looking over and going, who the fuck is that guy? (laughs) Yeah. He, uh, he'll draw a crowd. He stands out in the airport. As a friend of yours likes to say, uh, this yes, show is uh, nicknamed an out of body experience, which of course is a play on words about the new governor of Minnesota and former WWF wrestler and broadcaster, the one and only Jesse, the body Ventura. That's going to be a big part of what we're talking about here today, but 
I guess we should back up a little bit and tell you that we're coming fresh off of the fully loaded pay-per-view where we saw Stone Cold Steve Austin retain the world title, beating The Undertaker in a first blood match. And because of the stipulations there, Mr. McMahon had to no longer be involved with WWF affairs. Of course, being on TV is the big thing there. And of course, forever in wrestling lasts uh, about two months. Let's talk about uh, what we're really doing here, though. This uh, The Jesse Ventura aspect of this show is a big mainstream hit gets a lot of attention gets a lot of uh, intrigue and interest in the show and it's because all of a sudden jesse ventura is the governor of minnesota and this comes not too terribly long i mean what a handful of years after a big settlement between he and vince mcmahon let's start at the beginning i guess um 1987 He's negotiating his contract as a commentator and Jesse waived his rights to royalties on videotapes. When he says he was falsely told that only feature performers receive such royalties. And then in November of 91, he discovered that other non-feature performers receive royalties and he brought an action for fraud, misappropriation of publicity rights. And, uh, there you go. He's going to ask for $2 million in royalty based on a fair market value share. Eventually the case goes to a federal court and Jesse wins 800 grand, uh, 801, 333 to be exact. And the judge awarded him 8625 in back pay for all non-video merchandising, including Ventura. Of course, the judgment is affirmed on appeal, so it's going to stick and you guys are going to have to write a check. Let's talk about the eighties and, and the nineties first. When did you find out that, you know, Jesse was suing for this? And was this something that was talked about a lot in the locker room amongst the boys in the office? Tell me what you remember about 87 and 91. You know, I've, well, first of all, I wasn't even there when, when Jesse signed his deal and had nothing to do with it. So I don't know much about Jesse initially getting his deal. I do remember the rumblings in the early nineties of Jesse saying, why am I not getting paid for Coliseum video and what have you? And ultimately, you know, filing suit, but there wasn't, I don't know that a lot of people, you know, knew what the specifics were. It was other than what was in the lawsuit itself. And of course, Jesse was victorious uh, much to the company's chagrin, but I think it was a difference of opinion and one that the court felt that Jesse on his side was correct. So paid up and moved on, but it's, it was something that, uh, I think made everybody kind of relook at the contracts and relook at everything that that was done because the belief on one side was one thing and obviously on the other, something else and, uh, good for Jesse. So when this, you know, this payout rolls down, um, it, this feels like, and I guess that would have been 94 when he wins. And I think 95 is when you guys lost the appeal and he has to, Vince has to cut a check. And this is at a time when, you know, I think everybody listening to this knows 94, 95, not necessarily banner years financially for WWF. How does Vince take that? This feels like something that Vince would have had a burr under a saddle about, but you know, just a handful of years later, Jesse's in a prime spot on the show. So what do you remember about Vince's attitude about not only losing, but 
It's not like Ventura wasn't running around spiking the ball every chance he got. Yeah, not happy about it. And it, it just, again, made us be a lot more careful as to what what we have in our contracts and exactly how they are presented and what have you. So, yeah, I wasn't happy about it in any way, shape, or form. So we just sometimes you <laughs> you swallow it, you move on. This is one of those cases. There's not a whole lot you can do about it other than get back to business and move on. Whenever, uh, Ventura came up after this, you know, I guess we should mention that even before the whole lawsuit happened here, the rumor and innuendo was that Ventura was trying to get the boys to unionize. That couldn't have been something that McMahon liked the thought of. I'm just fascinated with the Ventura McMahon relationship. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, I think that Jesse and Vince had one of those, again, the same thing, kind of like Hogan. It was a love-hate relationship that they had excellent chemistry, definitely on screen. That goes without saying. But they they got along and didn't get along. And that antagonist, protagonist, in real life, kind of carried over on screen. So the people, you know, they had a, a really good rapport on screen as far as chemistry. So... As a performer, you know, they performed and made it work. Off screen, I think that it was just they um, usually agreed to disagree. What you see, you know, when you see Jesse Ventura with a lot of his conspiracy theories and what have you, very opinionated. That's not an act. That's that's the real Jesse Ventura. That was the guy that I used to walk in to do voiceovers in the morning who would be sitting in the chair, rocking in, in the chair and 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 argue with somebody about politics in edit one. So it wasn't a big departure and that just is who Jesse was. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm really fascinated by this because we know that they're going to sort of put Humpty Dumpty back together again for this show. And, and Vince has always done quote unquote, what's best for business, which became, you know, even a a common phrase on TV uh, a few years ago, but the, uh, the attitude that Ventura had about just wrestling in general, correct me if I'm wrong is more often than not one of, Hey, I'm with the boys. Fuck the promoter because the promoters are always trying to fuck you right or wrong. Is that fair to say? I would say that was fair to say Jesse definitely came from the old school. And I think that in life, Jesse kind of looks at things as what, what's the true ulterior motive behind whatever you're doing, if you open up the door for Jesse and things of that nature, so why, why are you opening up the door for me? I think Jesse is a non-trusting person in general and, and kind of looked at, at life, especially government that way. Um, but business and life in general, Jesse usually was looking for what, what's not believing anybody or anything, but what's your motive and what's going on here? I think that was just his personality type. It's even said that one of the reasons he agrees to work with Vince again and do this SummerSlam appearance is to stick it to Hulk Hogan and Eric Bischoff. Of course, his heat with Hulk Hogan goes back to the mid eighties in the WWF. And I guess, you know, as the legend goes, whenever Ventura is trying to rally the boys to unionize Hogan says, no, that didn't work for me, brother. And if you don't have his support, it's probably not going to go very far. And then I think most people know Eric Bischoff fired Jesse Ventura in 1994 and the body claims that Bischoff had backstabbed him 
and fired him really because Hogan came on board. Now there's a conspiracy theory for you, but we all know that that's sort of what Jesse does. Vince does a press conference at the end of July to announce that Jesse is going to be involved at SummerSlam and Meltzer would, uh, say that at the press conference, it was presented that there's going to be a hundred thousand dollar appearance fee, which would be split equally as a grant to Roosevelt high, uh, which is Ventura's alma mater and another charity. And Meltzer would also freestyle that his appearance fee should actually be much more than that. His value at this point is going to be a lot more than say Jay Leno meant for WCW or for that matter, perhaps even Dennis Rodman, but there is a bit of a debate about how much money and how this deal came together. And the reason it's so frequently discussed is because he is an elected official. What do you remember about putting the deal together? How the deal, who reached out to who, how the money was discussed, how you guys had to be careful about the optics to make sure that, you know, it went to charity and you know, whatever. Well, as far as. I wasn't involved in the deal. I think Vince reached out to Jesse, first of all, to congratulate him on becoming governor. And Vince is that way. You guys can have disagreements in, in the past, but he'll always be the first one there to, to congratulate you when you do something well, or if there's something going on, ask, you know, how can he help what's going on in your life? What have you? And I think that that, the fact that Jesse was open to that, it, it opened up dialogue. And there was also, other people involved in the political side of things that thought, well, Jesse Ventura, we're in Minneapolis at that time, obviously the most well-known face in, in Minnesota. Someone pitched the idea, Vince pitched it and, and Jesse liked it. And, and it really was as simple as that. So Jesse's, uh, agent, Barry Bloom became, you know, the, the guy that, represented half of the wrestlers for many, many years and so on and so forth and not very well liked in the business. Um, I couldn't stand Barry when I first met him and had to deal with him. We've actually become friends many years later, but it just was, uh, it just was business. Hey, we're in Minneapolis. Let's get the biggest name there. But as far as the money, Jesse being a public figure, uh, all that was was what it was. I don't think that he felt comfortable taking the money and said, let's donate it to charity and do a good thing and get publicity on both sides. I guess we should mention here that he's been with the company since 1980. He stays until 1990. Of course, he comes in as a wrestler, winds up retiring, I guess, in the fall of 84. He's got some blood clots in his lungs, and that's a wrap for him there. But he does become a bit of a pioneer. I, mean, I might be totally wrong on this, but... Is Jesse the first heel commentator? Actually, it was Roddy Piper who was the first heel commentator that I can remember. And I'm sure people are going to come up with other guys that had done it. But on a national level, WTBS in Atlanta, they used Rod Piper in the early 80s, very early 80s, uh, as a color commentator. And never even talked about him being a wrestler when he first came in. He was just Rod Piper uh, color commentator with Gordon Soley. So Roddy was first and I remember, and then Jesse coming after that. But I do believe that Jesse is probably the most recognizable and the one that set the bar and set the standard for the heel color commentator of, of the time and of everyone since. 
it's so funny that you mentioned Roddy Piper to me, because I was going to talk about the similarities between these two guys. First of all, I think, um, maybe what doesn't get talked about is that Jesse was really one of the first wrestlers to get a big movie role like this, where he gets a role in not one, but two Arnold Schwarzenegger movies in a time when an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie was pretty much guaranteed a blockbuster hit at the box office. He's in predator in 87 and running man. Uh, and then he would go on to other great hits like no holds barred. Uh, so that worked out exactly like we thought, uh, but they do wind up doing, <laughs> oh, sorry, that he and he and Roddy have a similar path in that regard, because, uh, Piper's going to step away from wrestling after WrestleMania three and do, uh, the highway man, uh, a television series. And then he's going to pop up and they live in 88. So they're both sort of trying their hand at Hollywood. And then they even get together, uh, doing a movie and then trying to do a television series. And I feel like they have a similar approach towards wrestling. You know, it's all about the boys. It's not about the promoter. And what similarities can you tell us about Roddy and Jesse Ventura and and maybe what their relationship was like? I think that they were both influenced by old school promoters. And by that, I mean, Jesse with Vern Gagne and Roddy Piper with uh, Don Owens. While Roddy kind of embraced the way that uh, Don Owens treated the boys and treated him in particular. There was a, a love there. With Jesse, it was more than anything kind of a hatred of Vern, feeling that Vern had mistreated him his entire career. Because Jesse didn't work a whole lot of places. Other than I, I do believe he actually worked in Portland for Don Owens and Vern Gagne before coming in and working for Vince McMahon senior. So I, I just think that they, they found that common ground there and that they thought that everybody was always out to get them and wondered what, you know, what the ulterior motive, why are you being nice to me? Right. Or why, you know, why are you being mean to me? What, what, what's going on here? There's gotta be a reason. What did I do? And they shared the same type of paranoia and the same type of conspiracy feelings, if you will. So naturally they were drawn together. Of course we know this is going to, uh, uh, flourish this relationship with Vince McMahon and Jesse Ventura, because eventually Jesse winds up doing some commentary for the XFL. Uh, let's talk about where the business is. Uh, even though business was super hot in 1998 record, in fact, it's somehow even hotter here in 1999. Your average attendance in August of 98, 11,311 fans, uh, were up 8% to 12,243 by the August 99 date. Your average gate though, it's a lot higher than 8% up. It's 42% up. I mean, this is unbelievable. When you think about it, your average gate goes from 210, 210 grand in 98 to 299,956. So nearly what 44 bucks away from being 300 grand at an average gate. That's like record business all time for the company. Is it not? That was without a doubt, some of the best years of the company. So it was, it was a really good flourishing time. And as business showed, it was time to make some moves. We should also mention that, uh, ratings are also in the WWE's favor 
Uh, the average rating in August of 98, 4.54. We're up 26%. Your average rating here in August of 99, 5.73. And I guess that tells really two stories. One, how strong the WWF is. And two, how WCW is starting to circle the drain and unravel. But the big news that's going around that I'm sure was a, a hot topic at your house and at the office is the company going public. Uh, Meltzer would report that they officially changed their corporate name from Titan sports Inc to world wrestling federation, entertainment, WWF E Inc. And it's announced on August 3rd that it files its paperwork to go public. And, uh, the initial offering will be 172 and a half million in class, a common shares. And, uh, they're going to be traded as WWF E. This is obviously a game changer. Uh, but as part of this process, you have to disclose your financials, which really have never happened before. Uh, the 172 and a half million based on previously published accounts would represent roughly 20% in a company publicly valued at approximately 862 million. And the latter figure would represent an approximation of the profit margin in the company last year multiplied by 17, which would mean over the past fiscal year. So from May 1st, 98 to April 30th, 1999, the company grosses 251 million and the actual profit is roughly $56 million. And that means roughly 12% of company revenue went to pay talent and figures that are Meltzer would say unusually low for most upper echelon touring sports or entertainment franchises. What did you you know, think of this idea that, Hey, we're about to go public. I mean, obviously that's a foreign concept in professional wrestling. I'm sure a lot of the sort of old school wrestling folks may have been like, okay, what does that mean exactly? But there's also the other side, not just of, Hey, we're about to make a bunch of money. There's also, uh Oh, are we giving up some control? Are we going to lose our identity? Were people excited, nervous, anxious? How would you classify the mood and, and the tone and tenor of this announcement? All the above. I mean, for me and some people that didn't quite understand everything that was going on, um, it was an unknown territory. You, you really didn't know what to expect. and You didn't know what was around the next corner. It sounded good because it's like, okay, hey, company's going to be worth an awful lot of money now, and you have an opportunity to have stock and participate. But I really didn't know what that meant. And I, I'm not sure that a lot of people knew what the hell that meant. Some did, some didn't. But I was always, you know, I go back to early on when Vince McMahon made a comment to me one time about how we're going to go public uh, one day. And, and everything that he was doing was to set the company up so that he could take it public. And create a lot more revenue for the company. So I'm like, okay, not knowing what that meant exactly, especially at the time, because it was so, so many years before this, that you're like, okay, how does this affect me? And, and that was, that was the general feeling with everyone is how, how is it going to affect me, my job and what I do are, is, is everybody going to know how much I make now? Is everybody going to know how much, um, 
everybody makes and exactly what's going on. Um, not that we just didn't understand it, I guess, was the, the best way to explain it. Well, here's what I understand. Credit card bills. Every month you get them with multiple payments, multiple due dates. Wouldn't it be easier to just have one payment at a much lower rate? Well, you can with a credit card consolidation loan from my friends and Lightstream. Get a rate as low as 5.95% APR with auto pay. Plus the rate is fixed. So it will never go up over the life of the loan. You can get a loan from 5,000 to $100,000 with no fees. And you can even get your money as soon as the day you apply. I've had a great experience with Lightstream. I've mentioned it here on the show many times before. I bought a car with these guys and uh, they overnighted me a check. I was able to negotiate like a cash buyer. I got the cheapest rate I've ever had in a car loan and uh, the paperwork was just a breeze. It couldn't have been any easier. I never even talked to anybody. I just did it right online. I mean, check it up the next day, done. And just for our listeners, you can apply now and get a special interest rate discount yourself. The only way to get this discount is to go to lightstream.com slash wrestle. That's L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M.com slash wrestle. Of course, this is subject to credit approval. Rate includes a half percent auto pay discount. Terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. But visit lightstream.com slash wrestle for more information. So at this point, we should mention that the company is 100% owned by Vince McMahon. He's taking a salary that's been disclosed as the CEO of $250,000 a year. Uh, Linda McMahon is the president of the company. She's been making $190,000 salary, but now that they're going public, he's going to bump up to a million dollar base and another million dollars as a performance bonus. Once the company goes public and Linda is going to do something similar. She'll go to 750 as a salary and get another 750 bonus when the company goes public. We never really talked about this, Bruce, but when you guys go public, does that mean it's a big payday for Bruce Pritchard? Well, I was hoping so. Um, and in reality, you know, yes, it was everyone, uh, especially long-term employees who had been there for many years, you know, we got stock and what have you. We just didn't understand what we had and, and it was options and, certain class of stock, but you could, you know, so much of it had to be vested over so many months and things of that nature. So never having gotten anything like that, been a part of a publicly traded company. I didn't understand it completely (laughs) had to have, we literally had to have seminars to teach people, okay, here's, here's what this means. Here's what you have. And Here's how you can use it and, and how it will be distributed. So it was exciting. I mean, yeah, it was, it was a good time and it, it definitely helped out. You know, in hindsight, was this a IPO from your perspective, life-changing money or just something nice to have? It's something nice to have. Okay. Well, let's keep it moving and let's talk about what else is going on in the company. Obviously we're probably going to do a, a, an entire show at some point about the company going public. Uh, but I do want to mention the, uh, financials because I'm so fascinated by this, the company's paper value as of April 30th, 1999, 45 million in cash and cash equivalents, 28 million in property. And there's only 12 million in long-term debt. So obviously the company is in very, very good shape, which is a stark contrast 
from the fiscal year 95, 96, where they lost $4.4 million. Now, of course we know in the summer of 96, Austin 316 is born and well, the fortunes of the company are forever changed. Uh, we, when we cover this, uh, IPO and the company going public, we'll also talk about how in December of 97, just a month after the survivor series, the Montreal screw job, the company had to borrow $12 million, which is, uh, not something a lot of people talk about, but clearly that paid off. Let's talk about something else though. That is in the news at the time that maybe isn't all smiles. The Kansas city police department has a criminal investigation into the death of Owen Hart. And according to a story that was carried nationally by the AP, the Jackson County prosecutor said on July 30th, that there was no basis for an involuntary manslaughter charge against the rigging coordinator. He says such a charge requires that there be a substantial and unjustifiable risk of death and that the risk was disregarded and that the disregard was a gross deviation from what a reasonable person would do under the circumstances. Uh, criminal and civil matters are two separate issues. That's what Pam Fisher of Calgary, a part of this legal team that's representing the Hart family against Titan sports would say they are two different proceedings and I don't think it will have any impact on our case. And the WWF has to state its claim on the website. It says that the decision further supports the world wrestling federation's belief as to the accidental nature of Owen Hart's death. And Owen's accident was one of those extremely unfortunate tragedies that sometimes occurred despite the best of precautions. This is, uh, gotta be taxing on, you know, the everyone just emotionally that this Owen stuff, it just feels like you're having to rip the bandaid off over and over again. Right? Well, it, yeah, I mean, it's terrible and it was a terrible, tragic accident and there was really no other way that anybody could rule it and, and look at it. Unfortunately, it was just a terrible, horrible accident and one that, uh, it's very difficult to forget and you like to, you know, try to move on as best you can, but it, it's tough and you, you just wish it never happened. I am fascinated by some of the news that makes out, makes the, uh, observer about a program called super Astros. And you and I've talked about this, I think on a Royal rumble 97 show, the final super Astros tapings are going to be happening here in August in Detroit, Chicago, and Milwaukee. And I say final because Vince has canceled it and allegedly he's canceled it because it's actually losing money. And in a time when nothing else the company is doing is losing money, this Univision deal for Super Astros is Univision's only paying 17 grand a week for the tapings, which isn't even paying for the production or talent or I mean any aspect of this. It's a money losing deal. And allegedly Vince tries to renegotiate the deal several months prior and wants to increase the show to an hour and in exchange get the compensation bumped up to 50 grand a week. And he's turned down. So even though it felt like it was going to be a high priority and we've always heard that Vince wanted to make the Latino market a, a major piece of the business, this one's losing money. Is this a bad deal? A bad show? What can you tell us about super Astros here? This was a strange deal. And this was something that was born out of 
trying to work with our partners and make everybody happy and, and looking at Univision as a partner of NBC. And it was gone into as a trial basis to show them what we could do, show them what audience that we could bring to Univision and create a show for them that would increase ratings, bring advertisers, everything that you do when you want to prove your worth. So Vince agreed to a much, a much smaller, uh, rights fee based on the fact that we were doing this in conjunction with our regular television tapings and bringing in talent from Mexico and, and creating a completely separate television show, separate set of commentators, separate set of backstage interviewers and what have you. Then packaging this show for Univision, and it was put in a Sunday morning time slot. And contrary to popular belief, uh, we increased the time slot rating by 10, point, 10 times what it had previously done. It really wasn't hard to do because I think they had us um, it's like a country music kind of show that was on before we took over there. And when we took over, ratings went through the roof. The only problem with that was Univision felt that because people tuned in for Super Astros and they tuned out as soon as Super Astros was over, because it was uh, largely, there was a large English speaking audience that would tune into it. It was, that was their feedback and that was their uh, main concern that, well, we're not, we're not getting Latinos. We're not getting enough Hispanics to tune in and watch this. We were giving them 10 times the audience of their previous and, okay, you can still sell this to advertisers and maybe, you know, you don't change the thing you do, but skew it a little bit to uh, dual speaking people that are watching the television show. Uh, Univision just didn't see it that way and they weren't really interested. While they liked the numbers, their bitch was, okay, that's great for the time that you're on, but what about, you know, the... The show that comes after you, nobody's staying. That led us to the, okay, well, we'll do an hour. So we'll give you an hour of these ratings. And they just says, well, now you give me an, an, another hour of an audience that, that we're not coveting. That was the big, that is what it kind of came down to. Just that the audience we delivered wasn't the audience that they thought they wanted. Well, who you guys wanted were the Dudley boys and Stevie Richards. Meltzer would report that you guys are in the process of making these three roster additions. And while the Dudleys hadn't signed as of yet, they had reached a verbal agreement with Jim Ross and agreed to start an angle that would lead up to them finishing up in ECW. And I think the story's out there that the Dudleys have said they never wanted to leave ECW. They asked Paul Heyman for a $1 raise over what they were offered by WWE and they would have stayed, but of course he couldn't or wouldn't match it. And Stevie Richards also is going to be coming in. Of course, we know Stevie was a standout in ECW and then got recruited over to WCW and then came back and it wasn't quite the same in ECW. And he works a lot of independence here and gets cleared physically because he did have some concussion 
stuff once upon a time, but he gets a medical clearance and ta-da, he's, uh, talked about coming in here and Meltzer would say it was even discussed that Stevie Richards might be a part of DX. That blew me away. What do you remember about bringing in the Dudleys and Stevie Richards and what the idea was for each set of talent and, and, and who was pushing for them and why it made sense to do it now? Well, Vince Russo was pushing for him and Vince Russo was the one pushing for all three guys, but it was, you know, as far as the Dudleys saying at any time that they didn't want to come in, they were there negotiating. So, (laughs) um, that's a strange way of letting somebody know that you don't want to, don't want to come in or leave. And the Dudleys coming in, I thought it was a, a pretty damn good addition to the roster as far as tag team goes. They were a solid team, and their work was solid. Uh, Stevie, I think that at that point in his career, I don't know how much Stevie really had left. Uh, he had had a lot of concussion issues and neck issues. So the feeling was on Stevie, are we getting damaged goods? And is this somebody we really want to invest in? And Russo pushed hard for Stevie to come in, and it may have been discussed maybe amongst Russo and everybody that, hey, you could be a part of DX, but I don't think that that was ever seriously broached, especially with the members of DX, of ever bringing him in and making him a part of DX. Well, somebody who is coming in is uh, Davey Boy Smith. Wade Keller would report that he agreed to terms and is set to debut shortly after SummerSlam. I think he signs officially on August 12th and a lot of people are not happy about this, specifically Bret Hart. who's ripping on Davey boy, uh, in his Calgary sun column saying that, you know, the WWF is basically trying to exploit the family by hiring him back in the wake of Owen Hart's death. And, um, well, he's pretty critical of it as would sort of some armchair, armchair quarterbacks at the time. What's the process in bringing Davey boy back here? And, uh, is anybody have a strong feeling or stance one way or another, since we are not too far past losing Owen Hart? Well, it was a lot of it was Stu that was calling and saying, Hey, can you do something for Davey boy? That's where that came from. Kind of like. Hey, get the, uh, can you get the, the, the fucking rhino and, and get him a job? It was, eh, Davey's sitting here and, uh, God damn it. He looks good. Vince, you, you got it. You, you, you could use him and put him uh, and Vince, uh, especially during this time, probably would have done anything for Stu. And this was a favor that was asked for by Stu and by Davey because, I don't remember Davey being in the greatest shape at this time and him coming in. It was, I remember saying, all right, you know, Davey, good God, you got to get, you got to tighten up and get in a little bit better shape, which he did. But, um, my recollection was this was something that, that Stu had personally called Vince on and Vince agreed to. So we let's bring Davey boy in. What do you remember about Barry Werner? He's a former editor of the New York daily, and he's going to be replacing Vince Russo as the head of the magazine division. Of course, Russo's still writing TV and now he's got to write a second show. So 
as a result, they're taking him off the magazine. Um, you could definitely tell a, 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 a swift change during the Vince Russo era running the magazine where you would see interesting articles and rants and punctuation, but now we're bringing in another guy. <laughs> Lots of punctuation. He was very fond of the, the multi-character exclamation point things. Yeah. Yes, he was. There would be lots of exclamation points and question marks. And that was a big part of his, uh, his approach, but Barry Werner, not a name that, uh, I'm even familiar with. What can you tell us about him? Barry came from the newspaper and Barry was one of those guys who was very friendly. You always wanted to have a newspaper guy when you were an old time promoter. You always had want to have somebody with the newspaper, somebody with the local news that you could go to to make sure that your cards got in the newspaper, that uh, you got plugged on the local news, whatever. And Barry was the editor of the New York uh, Daily News, and he was one that was very friendly with us and, and was a big wrestling fan and always wanted to be a part of it. So Barry had actually uh, asked about, is there something that he could do to come to work with us? And the magazine was the perfect avenue to take someone with Barry's skills and put him in. So Russo was busy doing television again, as you said, the addition of SmackDown that was stretching his duties out even thinner to the point where he couldn't devote as much time as was probably needed for the magazine as well. So let's bring somebody else in to run the magazine and take those duties off of Russo's plate. And Barry Warner was a guy, really nice guy, but I think he got in a little bit over his head with the magazine, I don't know that he had ever done anything of that magnitude on a, a international distribution basis. The the New York newspaper is one thing, but when you get into international distribution with a publication, it's a whole different ball game. And I think Barry kind of found himself underwater fairly quickly once he got in. Let's talk about the August 9th Raw. What a big show this was. It gets a 6.36 nitro only does a 3.11. So nitro is half. We recently talked about this show because we see the debut of Chris Jericho. You can hear all about that in our 20 years of Jericho episode, but there's also an appearance by Jesse Ventura. Jerry Lawler is going to interview him mid ring and Ventura says it's time to review who he is. He's a former wrestling champion. So he knows his way around the ring. He was the first referee at SummerSlam in the main event. Uh, and then he went off on a tangent aimed at Hulk Hogan of all people pretending to be a Navy seal on TV, saying that he was the only legitimate Navy seal wrestler. He said something like, uh, you're going to see a lot of frauds out there. A lot of Navy seal wannabes, people who want to pretend they were, but really were not people who, when it was time to serve their country, ran off like cowards and probably played in a hippie rock band. And people who like to pretend they are Navy SEALs on television shows on bad acted made for TV movies with Bozo, the clown haircuts. I'm the real deal when it comes to being a pro wrestler, former Navy SEAL. What is it about Jesse Ventura that all these years later, he still has a bug up his ass about Hulk Hogan? I don't know, man. I, you know, it's, it's like some guys in this business and, and it feels like it is in this business um 
more so than, than anywhere else in life. And, and maybe it is elsewhere in life, but I'm, I've been such a part of this business for so long that it's really all I see. But the personal grudges that are held for so long, for whatever reason, you know, hey, what well, one time, brother, you didn't hold the door for me, or one time uh, you hit me too hard in a match. And, and people will hold on to shit forever. And the, the rift between Hogan and Jesse just seemed to carry over for many years. And I think that if you were to ask Hulk Hogan, I think Hulk would be willing to forgive and forget and move on and, and want to bury whatever hatchet there is with Jesse. I don't know because I haven't spoken to Jesse in so many years, uh, probably since 1999, that I, I don't know if Jesse would be that willing on his side because you still hear remarks from him about the wrestling business and about certain performers, and especially Hulk. So, man, I don't know. I don't know why there was just such vitriol for so long. Like you said, and everything that they did, Jesse would find a way to throw it, throw in Hulk. Yeah. And that's, what's weird here. He's supposed to be selling SummerSlam and he can't help, but talk about Hulk Hogan's made for TV movies. Eventually though, he does say that he's going to deliver law and order in the main event. And we're going to decide who the best wrestler is. And he's really stressing the word wrestler. And eventually of course, triple H comes out and interrupts him and now, Triple H says something like, uh, you're stuck in the seventies because you're talking about wrestling and dwelling in the past and the fans are all over him. And eventually Ventura pops off something like I just met the president. You don't know who you're talking to. Shawn Michaels comes out to sort of save the day when it looks like it's going to get heated. Ventura whispers something into his ear. And then Sean announces that there would be a triple threat match with the undertaker, Austin and triple H tonight. And, uh, of course, Hunter wants nothing to do with that on this episode. We mentioned the Jericho debut. Uh, we just did a whole show on that, but that segment where he comes out, uh, and has the millennium cl uh, countdown clock go off right in the middle of one of the rocks promos does a huge number, a 7.3 rating. Is this one of the biggest raws ever? Yeah, it was. And, and if I'm, if I'm correct, I'm pretty sure this raw took place in Chicago. And one of the funniest things that had happened was they had placed a, uh, a large room, which was normally wasn't the TV office, but it was actually, it may have been Vince's normal office and they were going to use that as Jesse's dressing room. Well, that day we had been doing some stuff for MTV it was Snoop Dogg. And Snoopy, the dog was, was backstage and, uh, Snoopy <laughs> likes to, uh, puff, puff pass. So there was a, an aroma in the hallways and, you know, everybody's like, you know, what the fuck, who the hell? Oh, Snoop's here. So he got a pass because they would go off in the MTV area, which was the locker room right next to where Jesse was. And they would shut the door and go in there and smoke everything up. One of the people that were dealing with Jesse uh, from the office came up and like, oh my God, Bruce, Bruce, you, you've got to go, you've got to go talk to the MTV people. We think that's, that, that 
Snoop Dogg is smoking marijuana. I'm like, I don't think that there's any question that Snoop is smoking marijuana. The whole fucking place reeks of it back here. Uh, but the governor's coming. I said, yeah, he'll probably want us to go in and say hello. <laughs> you know, oh my God, no, he's got secret service with him. You can't, you know, the governor can't be here if there's going to be marijuana in the air. So I had to go talk to Snoop and ask him to, you know, we had to change rooms and put them in another part of the arena. And I said, Hey, can you ease up a little bit on the, on the lighten up, if you will, while you're in the building, the building's getting a little nervous and, uh, I don't need any incidents tonight. And he was cool as shit. And then TV people were cool as shit. And we moved him to another section of the arena and everything was fine. But as soon as Jesse got there, he walked in and of course still lingering. He's like, God smells good in here. He was fine. Yeah. I mean, it's not like, well, Jesse was cool. All right, Bruce, we need to take a time out right now to give the homeowners who listen to something to wrestle a heads up. We've talked about it for the last week or so, but all of a sudden the federal government is going to make it more difficult to access your home equity. That's going to happen on September 1st. And it's not a little bit of money. It's a lot of money. I've seen an example where it could cost you access to $42,736. That's right, $42,736 that you won't have access to if you wait and start your loan process September 1st. Now, this is not a change with my company. It is a change from the federal government. You need to get ahead of this right now. Let us run the numbers for you. If you ever think you might want to access the equity for your home, maybe do a little home remodeling, put in a pool, upgrade the countertops in the kitchen, put in a tile shower, maybe kick out a badass man cave, Or maybe we just wanted to go ahead and consolidate some credit card debt, get a lower monthly payment. We can help you do that too, but to get the most bang for your buck, you need to start your loan process right now. Now you don't have to close by the end of the month. You just need to get started. See for yourself right now at lastchancetosave.com. That's lastchancetosave.com. Or if you just like to ask me a question about it, see if I can't run the numbers for you, I'd be glad to shoot me an email, conrad at savewithconrad.com. It's important if you're a homeowner and you think you ever might want to access your equity, all of a sudden real estate values are about as good as they've ever been, meaning you probably have more equity than any time ever before. And at the same time, interest rates are at historic lows, meaning there's never been a better time or a cheaper time to borrow money. It's almost as cheap as ever to borrow money right now. And in addition to that, your house is probably worth more than ever before. So this is a perfect storm to take advantage of the equity in your home, to restructure some debt, get a greater tax deduction, get a better interest rate. But more importantly, if you wait and start September 1st, you're going to have less access. Check it out. Lastchancetosave.com. That's lastchancetosave.com. Animal lesson number 65084, equal housing lender. Uh, Steve Austin is uh, a hot topic, of course, always, but um, he's got some nagging injuries. And there's also some reports in the Observer that he's becoming harder to deal with. And he's also signed on to do five consecutive episodes on the CBS TV show Nash Bridges as Jake Cage. And, uh, they, they love him there because, uh, he's ratings and he's done well, but he's been out of action since July 27th, multitude of injuries. The worst of which is a torn TCL, the ligament, in the back of the knee. And, uh, he took a bump after the raw taping ended where he was supposed to go through the announcer's table with triple H, but he landed wrong and the table didn't break. 
was there ever a concern that Austin wasn't going to be available for SummerSlam? There was that concern. Yes. And you know, I, I love to address that the rumors of Austin was difficult to deal with and becoming more difficult to deal with and so on and so forth. Maybe for some people who Steve didn't particularly want to work with from the standpoint of, of backstage and what have you, uh, not happy with some of the creative. However, if you worked with Steve, Steve worked with you. And I, I keep going back because when you hear that shit and it's your personal experience, and that's my personal experience that I can only speak to, where if you talk to Steve and you're, you face him man up and you discuss shit, you can work through anything. Um, he's hard-headed, he's bullheaded, has very strong opinions, but he's also reasonable. Some, most of the time he's reasonable. Sometimes he could be unreasonable, but he was never to me. He was never difficult to deal with. You just had to figure it out. You had to go in and work. And that's what our jobs were, were to go in and make, make this work. So, um, without a doubt. He was a ratings bonanza for us, and he proved it outside with the Nash Bridges and, and Jake Cage stuff. And there was rumblings as far as, does he get his own series? Is this something that can go on and, and be Steve's, you know, Steve's next thing to get him out of wrestling where he doesn't have to take any bumps? But I don't think Steve was ever looking at that anything more than Hey, I can go do this for take a month off, go shoot this series and come back. I don't think Steve was ever looking at this time in his career that he was looking at something full time and getting out of the business altogether. I do want to talk about the whole being difficult to get along with. I want to give a couple of examples. Austin would say, or Austin was scheduled to wrestle Billy Gunn in a non-title match on July 26th at raw in Cleveland. And Austin's a little banged up from the night before in the first blood match with the undertaker. And he doesn't want to wrestle Billy Gunn. He says, there's no storyline reason why I would have a cold match with this guy. And nobody could give him a good enough storyline reason to change his mind. Yeah. Uh, he thought it would be better. But, but that's, but that's true. Uh, I mean, again, He's stating his opinion. It was an ice cold match. It was just a match for a match. And Steve felt that by having a match with Billy Gunn, he's going to go out and he's going to beat him. What does that do to help Billy Gunn? If this is a guy that you're trying to get over, then me going out and beating him is not going to help him get over. And it doesn't further Steve's story at all. And Steve felt going out and cutting a promo, doing something else to further the story was better than just going to have an ice cold match with Billy Gunn. It wasn't anything against Billy. It was more against the writing and, and not wanting to hurt Billy Gunn. You just wonder though, in 99, when you guys were trying to push Billy Gunn had Austin and or rock, cause they both had sort of Billy Gunn incidents handled those situations a little differently. What Billy Gunn's career might've looked like, but let's talk about Jeff Jarrett uh, Meltzer would say he's another story. Austin did nix a planned program with Jarrett with Austin, believing Jarrett isn't over enough to where it would make sense for a guy in his position to work with him. 
The feeling within the company is that if Jarrett were to get over to the level the company wants him to be, that Austin might consider working with him at that point. Although there are other mitigating factors, there's apparently a personal animosity issue between Jarrett and Austin because Jarrett cut a promo criticizing Austin's 316 moniker that was taken very seriously. And apparently people have been told, uh, he doesn't want to be the person who picks Jarrett up to a level that he hasn't been able to obtain on his own. What do you remember about X naying a Jarrett Austin situation? First of all, there was no Jarrett Austin situation, quote, planned. Okay. Uh, Jeff Jarrett was coming back and Steve was asked, you know, Hey, is there something we could do with Jarrett down the line? And Steve's thing was, you know, get him over, get him over. But the, he said, do not, you know, don't go out there and challenge me. He's got his program and he wanted Jeff to prove himself. That part is true. He did. There was, uh, I think, some perceived animosity going from uh, a comment that Jeff had made many years ago when Steve worked in Tennessee that Steve continued to remember many years later. And Jeff came in, I, I, you know, I didn't want Jeff Jarrett there at the time. Uh, I felt that Jeff had walked out on us before wasn't interested in bringing Jeff Jarrett back at that time at all, any way, shape or form. And then that night him going out and cutting the, uh, blasphemous three sixteen promo, which nobody knew about. And that was something between him and, and Vince Russo, whatever that was, uh, Steve wasn't happy about that. It's like, I'm not going to work with him. Not until he gets over. So. Steve didn't want Jeff coming in and going right on top with him. That's not something he wanted to do. And in the position Steve was in, he was in that position to say yay or nay. But there wasn't any program. There wasn't any plan, uh, anything like that. It was, as far as I know, just asked. And Steve was like, yeah, get him over. But I'm not going to work with him right off the bat. Coming out, coming there, he needs to get over first before we can do anything together if we're going to do anything together. Let's get to SummerSlam while we're actually here. Uh, our first match, Jeff Jarrett going to be in there with D'Lo Brown. They get about seven and a half minutes and they're going to heavily tease a Jarrett Deborah breakup. And, uh, Deborah is going to come back with Brown and Jarrett's working the left shoulder and pretty good match. A slim down. Mark Henry does a run in takes the guitar from Jarrett. But instead turns on Brown and clocks him with it and Jarrett scores the pin. So Jarrett, Deborah, and Henry all leave together in a two and a quarter star match. And as a result, Jarrett is now your intercontinental and European champion. What do you think of the match here? Eh. <laughs> okay. I mean, technically fine. It just was lacking personality, I guess, more than anything, lacking excitement and lacking me, me caring about it more than anything. I just, it left me cold. I didn't, I didn't feel there was enough at stake here. It was, uh, when you put the intercontinental championship and tie it to the European championship, I felt it took the intercontinental championship down a little bit and it became just, a. Another belt, if you will. 
And I, yeah, I didn't think it was that great at all. Kind of left me cold a little bit. The next night on raw Jarrett would just give the European title to Mark Henry. And, uh, I think this is the only title that Henry holds for like the first 12 years of his career. And eventually in 2008, he would beat Kane in the big show to win the ECW world title. But what do you think about the, uh, I don't know. We're just going to hand guys belts here on TV. Well, that's what Russo thought of the championship. So yeah, meant nothing meant absolutely nothing. We've got a, uh, a fun match next. Uh, it gets three and a quarter stars. Christian is going to pin Matt after an elbow drop off the top rope. Uh, the fans are, are really into this, um, as well. They should be, you know, I mean, edge and Christian and the Hardy boys. That's, that's good. Every time. What'd you think of this one? Well, I th- look, I thought the match was good and it was interesting. When you look at the participants in this, what they would become. Right. And how many, you know, how few years it was before they were going to be going out and stealing the show on SummerSlam and on WrestleMania and becoming big time players. So to that, I sat there and went, holy shit, God, look how young they are. Uh, But yeah, I thought the match, this match was fun and, and easy to watch because you're invested in the characters, even at that point, and you try to go back in time and, and recapture that feeling, um, it, it still felt good. And it felt good to watch these young guys go at it and where they would be many years later. Well, I'm not just two months later at new blood. They do the ladder match right. for Terry Runnels. And at the time, the Hardy boys are the new brood because gang grills with them and they're taking on edge and Christian. there, just a barn burner. And then of course, when you, Sprinkle in some Dudley boys a little later. Woo. It's going to be wild. Uh, after this incredible match comparatively, we get Christian <laughs> and edge against Midian and viscera. Uh, of course the crowd is dead for this, uh, half a star, two minutes, and then it's uh, edge and Christian getting a win over draws and Prince Albert a minute and 49 seconds. So two quick matches under two minutes, two stars. Then Farouk and Bradshaw come down. They get four minutes. This is not nearly as good as the first one though. And, uh, then Farouk and Bradshaw will pick up a quick win over, uh, Bob and crash Holly in three minutes. I gotta tell you, I know at the time, maybe this booking made sense, but these back to back really fast, short tag matches, it just feels weird now in a vacuum 20 years later, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And it, and it overall, I don't think this pay-per-view held up to the test of time, as they say, and you start off, you know, look at what you started off with edge and Christian against the Hardys, and it drops off from there. So the idea is, you know, Farouk and Bradshaw come out victorious at the end of this, but it just didn't. Yeah. Everything was so quick that there was no time to build any matches. There was no time to care about anybody else until you, until you got basically to Farouk and Bradshaw, as long as edge and Christian were in there. Hey, great. I cared about them. I didn't care about their opponents. And then you got rid of them and just did not feel good to me at all. And 
it was at the expense of, of the young talent. It was just too damn quick to absorb and, and really care. Uh, we should mention that, uh, this is quite the, uh, the jump here for crash. He debuted on August 10th. So his first time on TV versus his first pay-per-view, there's like six days between them crash course for old crash Holly here, huh? Absolutely. And, uh, Mike looking land, I believe was his last name. You know, he was somebody that we had had development for quite some time, always looking for something. His gimmick when we hired him was that of a leprechaun and he was an evil leprechaun and had this goofy shit, you know, kind of gimmick that he, that he did when he came in. And I think it was Russo to Russo's credit, looked at him and said, God, he looks you know, a lot like Bob Holly. And we came up with crash Holly. <laughs> it's a, you know, the wild cousin that nobody talks about and brought him in. And I thought it was the perfect, just absolutely perfect gimmick for him that he worked to the max and, and really made it work. What did you say his last name was looking land? How about Lockwood? Lockwood, whatever the fuck it's close enough. It was an L and an O <laughs> next up. We've got Al snow and the big boss, man. They're going to be in here for the hardcore. What the title. hell did I say? Looky land. Like, like if Candyland had a looking glass, I don't know what the fuck you're doing, but it's Lockwood. Yeah. That's what I meant. Looky land. Looky land. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, it's like no. the worst amusement park ever. Looky land. Hey, come ride looky land. No, oh, I'm going to use that a little. We don't have a blue cheek commercial this week, but that would have been the spot right there. Boys and girls. There you go. Uh, they go seven and a half minutes here for the hardcore title. Yeah. This is interesting because, uh, after the match, Stevie Richards and blue Meanie are trying to kidnap pepper, but, uh, Meltzer would say, I guess they were afraid of some heat from the animal cruelty group. So they specifically say on commentary, they're not trying to kidnap pepper. Yeah. What'd you, <laughs> I mean, listen. children and animals, children and animals is what I have to say about that. Um, first of all, you always had to have a, a, animal person on the set whenever you're working with animals. So you have to be very careful of how you handle the animals and what you do and what you portray first of all. So yes, we had to, you just couldn't write whatever the hell you wanted. And Russo tried, ah, it's, it's entertainment, bro. Um, but you couldn't, you, you can't do that. And especially in a, in a program that, is reality based. Um, it's all entertainment. It is 100% scripted and, and meant for that. So we should be able to do whatever the hell we want. No different than a movie. And, you know, dogs pass in movies sometimes and are, are kidnapped. And, but I think that even at this time, you go back and look at a lot of the television shows and movies that were done during that time, the dog always has to come back. Right. So, um, that's, yeah, that's where we were not kidnapping the dog. No, no, no. That would be a bad thing. By the way, Al Snow gets the win uh, on a pool table. what do you think of the, uh, from a production standpoint, shooting these hardcore matches 
out of the ring, just all over the place. Is this a production nightmare? It is a production nightmare when you try to do it live. If we could go and pre-tape the stuff ahead of time, uh, easy peasy, not a problem. And I thought that it would give a, a, a good look and it takes you out of the arena for a minute. Not always the best thing for the live audience because as live audience is there, they got, they've got to watch it on a screen now. And that's where they get the finishes on the screen and it's anticlimactic. But if you can, and sometimes if you can take it on location, it does enhance the match. And I think in this case, this enhanced the match. I thought that they did good once I got in the bar and it just takes you to a different element versus the ring inside the arena all the time. Next up, we've got Ivory and Tori, and they probably wish that this one was anywhere but the wrestling ring. It gets negative two stars. And uh I wish it was on Super Astros. <laughs> After the match, Ivory is gonna undo Tori's top, but she's face down. Luna Vashon is back. And uh I guess she can be back because she was making Sable's life miserable before, but Sable is no more. She's going to make the save and chase Ivory away. Fans are going to boo heavily, not because the match is bad, but because Tori can get her top back on before anyone gets a chance to see her gimmicks. Uh, what'd you think of the match and what her gimmicks have made the match better? Oh, well, gimmicks always make the match better. Um, it was fucking terrible. It was clumsy. <laughs> um, go back and watch this one, folks. You know what's weird about this? These are real wrestlers. Like, like Ivory's been wrestling for a long time. Tori's been wrestling for a long time. This isn't like, you know, we're dusting off models here and trying to teach them, you know, wrist locks. Yeah. Th these are these are female, arguably two of the better American female wrestlers at the time. And this one's just a stinker. Oh, it would have to improve a lot just to be a stinker. This was a classic example of no chemistry, no timing, just bad match. Uh, and like you say, it would be different if one of them wasn't a capable performer, but both of them. Yeah were long time, had a lot of, lot of years in the business. You know, Terry had wrestled in Japan for many years and, and had wrestled all over the world. Same with ivory and good God. And, and maybe it was the, you know, the, the silly, silly crap with the match, but it just didn't, didn't work. Didn't work at all. Didn't click. Next up, and see this, and see this is one of those situations where Russo would claim, "Oh, what am I supposed to do with wrestlers? I, I can only have a wrestling match. I need to make it more. I need someone who doesn't know what they're doing to work and all that bullshit." And um, he didn't know what to do with people that could work. A lot of times, that confused him. Next up, an interesting one. A lion's den cage match with Ken Shamrock and Steve Blackman. It's not the first time we've seen this gimmick. Shamrock had a pretty good one before with Owen Hart. This one, not as good because well, it's Steve Blackman and not Owen Hart, but they're going to use nunchucks, a cane, kendo stick, 
there's a lot of gimmicks here, but I don't know about the match. It gets a star and a quarter. Of course, Shamrock wins. What'd you think? I thought that this particular match, it was okay, but it wasn't great because it's, it's like Ken Shamrock facing himself or Steve Blackman facing himself. The guys are too much alike. However, as far as the lion's den, I helped kind of come up with that when we were looking for the, uh, match with Owen to make it different, put it in a shamrock environment, but, uh, something that was unique and different. We couldn't do an octagon or anything like that. And someone came up with that concept of, of the lion's den. And I really, I really liked it cause it was smaller. It was more confined. And I thought you could do some shit and Owen, and Ken were able to do some stuff in that match. Shamrock and Steve, just two similar gimmicks and two guys that were legitimately tough, who really liked each other a lot. And you would have thought would have had a lot of chemistry, but it was just too, too similar for the, for anybody to really care. And then you put them, you confine them into this small cage in the heated, there wasn't a big heated issue with them other than who's the baddest guy, who's who's the tough guy. And it wasn't personal enough to, to really care for me. Well, how'd you care about the next one? It's Test and Shane McMahon. And uh, if Test wins, it means he can date Stephanie and Shane has to leave them alone. And this is all set up on the uh, July 12th episode of Raw. Test is going to wrestle... The main street posse in a gauntlet match, but it ends in a no contest when Shane interferes. And when the posse try to break Tess ankle, Stephanie comes out and grabs Shane from behind thinking it was a referee Shane backhand elbows or, uh, Stephanie and knocks her out. And then the following two weeks, Stephanie's rejecting Joey abs and demands that her brother and his friends stay out of her life. And in the August 15th episode of heat. Shane would challenge Tess to a lover or leaver Greenwich street fight. Yeah. So if Shane wins test can no longer date Stephanie and they go out and have a match here and it's actually not bad. Three and a half stars. If you can believe it, uh, lots of story, lots of shenanigans, lots of ref stuff and, uh, interference with the main street posse. Not terrible, but, uh, Meltzer could be pretty critical and things like Pete gas is so ridiculously comical in his lack of charisma. what do you think of the match? what do you think of the steps, the stakes as Bruce would say, or Eric would say a lover or lever match. <laughs> well, you know, I, I actually adopted that in my later years so that anybody that wants to date my daughter, Amber, they have to go through Kane first. Now, um, and in this case, you don't mean her brother. You mean the demon from hell, the mayor of Knox County. Exactly. Yes. What the hell do you think I meant? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> in an inferno match. <laughs> yes. Something like that. Yes. Yes. And you have to figure out a way to get in the ring because he starts in the ring. This match especially looking at the participants, Shane greener than grass and Tess greener than grass and the, the posse, um, still in the weeds. Yeah. It wasn't bad. And here's why, because they didn't know how to work. So they just beat the shit out of each other and left, you know, 
they, by God, brought everything. They laid everything in. So from that standpoint, you are cringing through most of it. He's like, oh, God, that hurt. No, oh, shit. No, he did not. Um, and anybody that's been to Greenwich, you know that those are some tough streets to walk, man. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, sometimes, sometimes the, the pavement, because the, the, the main street is like brick, laid brick. Sometimes some of those will get loose, man. It can be really, really dangerous. Mm. Um, yep. So yeah. the, the, this, uh, this match has a lot of gimmicks, like even the mailbox, there's some, uh, a main street posse mailbox here that you and I actually saw at the warehouse last year, year before. And I think there's a picture of me and Dave Silva with it. It's just, it's actually a pretty good match. And, and Pete gas would say years later, it's because they spent three days choreographing the entire match. There was no improv Shane's going over every single spot in order. He wants to make sure that, you know, they've eliminated all the variables and, uh, it's a good match. And as a result, it's Tess's first big win on a pay-per-view. And now he's put into a storyline with Stephanie. So in a weird way, this is probably the breakout match for test. Yeah, it was without a doubt. And still the jury was out on test, but the commitment had been made. And I think that for Russo's standpoint, he wanted to, to prove the naysayers of test wrong. That by God, I'll show them and I'll get him in a program and, and he'll do just great. I think that the, and I think he did okay. I really do, but it just was kind of forced in there, but at least it was a story. And, and that's where you got to give the devil his due with Vince Russo. Everything that, that we had going had a story. You cared about everything and everything did have a story good or bad. It had a story and that was what made those matches unique. And, uh, for instance, the, the, the mailboxes, there was a famous story of one night, the posse Shane and the posse for whatever reason went and, you know, what kids do. And, and apparently they took out a few mailboxes one night. And when they found out about it, Vince made them go back to the places that they had damaged the mailboxes and get new mailboxes and put new mailboxes into everywhere that they had, uh, had taken the mailboxes out and apologized to everyone. So, I mean, that's where the mailbox, these guys were, were really Shane's best friends. This right. was, this was his posse and they all hung out together and, and all did things together. That's the other thing. It was real. You could feel that these guys cared for each other and had grown up together. And that part of it really worked. Next up, we've got the uh, WWF tag titles on the line. Kane and Xbox are going to be defending against the undertaker and big show. So it's the three biggest guys in the company and Xbox. They got 12 minutes and one second, two and a half stars. Uh, of course, undertaker and big show are going to win the tag titles. And as a result, this is big shows first title in the company. And I noticed when I watched this back that JR is calling X-Pac Sean Waltman on commentary, which is pretty unusual at the time. What do you remember about this match? Well, JR might've been drunk when he did that. Just kind of slipped. Uh, X-Pac is uh, Sassafras. Sassafras. That's uh, Sean Waltman. And 
I don't know. No, I'm kidding. I was I'm kidding. Say, you need to correct out because he is fucking Jesus not happy with Christ, you. Christ, man. I'll be getting tweets over that. Well, um, uh, that Dr. Heine shit, he's, he's still in his feelings on you saying that was, uh, uh supposed to be funny. Okay. Well, I'm sorry. I think some of his shit that he thinks is funny is not funny. So whatever we, we agree to disagree. God damn, get over it. Well, we can all agree that this is a, a better match than maybe you expect. Usually when you see multiple big guys like this, I have lowered expectations, but maybe this just proves that Xbox can make anything work. Uh, I, I like this match, uh, better than I thought I would. What'd you think? Well, so did I, and I'm looking at it on paper thinking, oh God, this is going to suck. Yeah. But it was a nice storyline with Undertaker and Big Show, where Taker is, is taking Big Show under his wing to make him a champion. So that part of the story was good. And then you've got the other side. You've got X-Pac to, to sell and Kane to actually come in and be the, the big equalizer, if you will. I was actually shocked at how good that the match was. But I enjoyed the hell out of it and sat there. It makes you go back to a time where Big Show really did look up to the undertaker and look to him to be his mentor, looked up to the undertaker. Help me. Can you help get me to that next level? Make me a giant, make me a top guy. And this match and this whole storyline was to do just that. And in my opinion, with all that in consideration, it really worked and kind of was the first time that you saw big show step up to where he rightfully should have been. All right, let's run a timeout right now, Bruce, and remind everybody that today's episode is brought to you by CBS Sports HQ. Nowadays, sports TV is full of made-up drama, beating the same topics into the ground, hot takes from people who don't even believe what they're saying. But CBS Sports HQ changes all that. You see, CBS Sports HQ is a network that streams live 24-7 with coverage that's just focused on the game. They bring you the latest news, highlights, previews, and reactions to all the on-field action. And their fantasy sports experts will give you the info you need to make the right calls for your lineup. And their betting experts will help you cash in on your wagers. No fake debates, no politics, just sports for real sports fans. But maybe best of all, it's free. Not free for a week, not free for a month, not free if you have some special cable package. Totally, completely free. You don't even need to log in. Just open up your CBS Sports app and watch anytime from anywhere on your phone or at home on your Apple TV, your Roku, your Fire TV. It couldn't be easier. Did we mention it's free? Download the CBS Sports app and watch CBS Sports HQ today. The next match is something we sort of teased and talked about a little earlier. It's The Rock and Billy Gunn in a kiss my ass match, or as it was referred to on some promos that aren't nearly as liberal as the USA Network, a kiss my backside match. 10 minutes and 12 seconds. Billy Gunn is going to come out with, uh, what Meltzer would describe as a short, very large woman under a sheet and said when he won rock would have to kiss her ass and not his, of course, we know what's going to happen here. <sighs> yeah. During the match, I guess we should just mention here that rock gets a bloody nose. And when Gunn finally uses his famouser, he goes to rub the rock's mouth on the woman's ass. She lifts up a short dress and shows these huge panties and 
during the match, JR and, and Lawler are sort of speculating what type of underwear she would be wearing and rock reverses things and shoves guns face into her ass and then hit the rock bottom and the people's elbow. And there's your pin. Meltzer would write reports on the rock was very upset working with gun midway through the match. And this contributed to a somewhat disappointing match. A fact he pretty well made clear on TV the next night when he tried to categorize gun with Gangrel and even the Brooklyn brawler as wrestlers that he shouldn't be booked with two and three quarter stars. What happened in this match? Why did it get sideways? What do you remember about the rock being upset? Whose idea was the big lady? So much to unpack here. Well, this sure the big lady was Vince Russo's idea. Again, storytelling and entertainment wise. But this was during a time where we were trying to get something out of Billy Gunn, and we felt that if you know Rock's not going to be able to get anything out of him, maybe we need to relook at this. And Billy did have asthma, and as a single performer, we've talked about this a lot of times. That you know Billy was excellent. In a tag team, Billy was able to come in and shine and be that guy in a tag team left on his own in a single atmosphere during this time frame. It was still new to Billy. And you think about it, his whole career, he'd been a tag team guy. You know, brief stints here is there. We'd rockabilly and all that other horse shit. Um, and yes, rockabilly was mine, so I can call it horse shit. Uh, you, you're trying, but there, there comes a point where, okay, if he can't do this with rock, is he going to be able to do it? Is he going to be able to be that top guy? So at this point, it just didn't gel. It didn't work. And there, yeah, there was feeling that maybe Billy is not the guy, at least in a single position to be up at the top of the card. Maybe we need to reevaluate and find something else, find a new partner, maybe redo the new age outlaws, whatever that may be to get us to where we want to be with Billy. And this wasn't it. This wasn't, this really wasn't working. We, we continued to try for a little bit, but it just didn't, didn't jive. Well, you know, he, he wins the King of the ring in June here, two months later, that's pretty much it. As a singles, not too long after this, they go back to what brought them to the dance, the new age outlaws with road dog. Let's get to our main event in the weeks leading up here. There's been a lot of mystery and intrigue about who's actually wrestling Austin here. As of the August 9th raw, it was scheduled to be Austin triple H and the undertaker in a triple threat, but Austin is found attacked in the stairwell. Michaels is going to accuse triple H of being the attacker attacker here, but triple H denies it. And then Sean sets up a triple threat match for the, uh, number one contendership on the line with triple H undertaker and China. Austin would return later that night, hit triple H with a chair, put China on top, which allows her to become the number one contender. And then the next week, triple H challenges her to a match for that number one contendership and China accepts, but this time China wins again. After mankind returns from a knee injury and attacks triple H and then mankind attacks or or challenges China. She refuses low blows mankind and Sean overrules her and makes the match. So then mankind defeated China when triple H attempted to interfere. 
And then Shane McMahon comes out and says, as the owner, he's booking a match between mankind and triple H to determine who really is the undisputed number one contender. Of course, there's a big schmoz here. And eventually we get our triple threat, man. Talk about a fucking convoluted way to set up a triple threat. I mean, I guess there was at least a story to explain it, but lots of twists and turns here with China. So we've got a three-way with mankind, Steve Austin and Hunter Hearst Helmsley. They're going to go 16 and a half minutes. Of course, China's going to be involved. Uh, triple H is going to go for the pedigree on mankind, but Austin clotheslines him. Then he hits a stunner on triple H, but mankind makes the save. And then Hunter uses the pedigree on Austin followed by mankind using the double arm DDT on him and mankind pins Austin to win the title. After the match, triple H delivers one chair shot after another to Austin's knees. And there is some serious old time heat for the post-match. According to Dave Meltzer, two and three quarter stars, mankind is victorious. I don't think a lot of people would have seen that coming. What'd you think of the match? What'd you think of the way we got here? Uh, was this always the main event? Was it always supposed to be mankind Hunter and Austin? Well, okay. I'll start off with in order. I thought that the match was very good. I thought that these guys went out and busted their ass and, and it was a hell of a match, especially when you take into consideration the condition that Austin was in because Austin was hurting her. Austin was hurting bad. You know, Mick was hurting. His knees were hurting as well here too. So it was, and I think Hunter actually had an injury as well, but, but getting to it, there were so many unknowns. I sat back and tried to figure out and think, cause I knew the question was, I saw it on, on Twitter. I don't remember what the hell ever the original match was. For SummerSlam, because I do remember getting into it and just the, the thought of, well, shit, if Steve can't go, what are we going to do? Right. Uh, if, if Mick can't go, if Hunter can't go, if Hunter, we had all these guys available and kind of intertwined in the story, but not sure what shape we were going to be in. And th- these were also the days of, you didn't know what the main event a lot of times or what any of the matches were for that matter of a pay-per-view until the week before. Sometimes you didn't even know then, you know what I mean? It was so convoluted a lot of times that there were so many different stories going on all over the place. It was difficult to keep score without a card. So I go back and I racked my brain thinking, God, was it supposed to be Austin Hunter? Was it supposed to be Austin Mankind? I know Taker was involved in this. Where the fuck are we? And I think it just got down to the, okay, let's put these three in there. And I think everybody thought we'll drop the title to Hunter and nobody thought we'd ever drop it to Mankind. And I believe the End result was no one will ever call this. That was the reason for going to mankind. It was the the swerve, bro. But I thought it was a good swerve. I thought it was something because, again, everybody, everybody inside the business, outside the business felt, we're going to drop that title to Hunter here. And instead went with mankind. Got it on Hunter eventually after that. But it it was just that swerve to keep people on their toes. And just when you think you've got it all figured out, we change the questions. You know, the rumor and innuendo, I guess we should s- sort of set the stage at fully loaded. 
Uh, there's a match between tw- Triple H and The Rock. This is the month prior. This is July of 99. And those two have a match where the winner gets a title shot at SummerSlam. So we're, we're headed towards this pay-per-view thinking it's Triple H and Austin for the title. But then after months of being off TV with uh, knee surgery, mankind has slid into the match. And the rumor and innuendo is that he's added to the match because Austin wouldn't put Triple H over. That's not what happened. That is not what happened. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what else to tell you about that. That's, that's not what happened. We should mention that, uh, the very next night on raw triple H wins the belt. Uh Uh-huh. For the first time, instead of having his world title victory happen at SummerSlam, it happened, uh, in a singles match with mankind, Austin, not on television where more people would see it, but Austin, not involved at all. Right. Um, there's a moment in the match here. That's still one of my favorite moments. <laughs> you know where I'm going with this. I don't know why I like this, but Jesse throws Shane over the top rope and Austin gets on the rope to taunt him. And he accidentally flips over the top rope and his knee brace is caught between the ropes. And he's just sort of dangling there upside down and cannot get out. And triple H who should just run over and kick the shit out of him realizes uh, he's stuck for real. <laughs> I know. And <laughs> <laughs> goes back and untangles him just so he can come out and kick his ass. I mean, I understand that he had to, but it is one of the most unintentionally hilarious things in wrestling. You've got to go watch it. If you just see that one thing, um, I guess we should mention that lots of people watch this show for the very first time because of the intrigue of Jesse Ventura. Tons of coverage everywhere, both Sunday and Monday. Uh, it's even all over, you know, the newspapers, the AP, uh, cable news everywhere. And there is, um, some criticism that they feel like the show was undignified for a governor. Uh, I think he said the word bullshit. And there's a lot of people who are offended over the heavyset woman who was involved in the rock Billy gun match. And, uh, of course, people who were sort of taking shots at Ventura for this or bringing up the Owen Hart controversy and on and on. He does a press conference the next day though. And he refuses to answer any questions regarding wrestling because he termed his appearance as his personal life. And he said, he thinks that reporters that are questioning him on his appearance are quote out to get him, but he did agree to sit down and do some one-on-one interviews with carefully selected reporters in the coming weeks. And, um, you know, I mean, this is a time, this seems silly now, but I mean, he was, he was doing appearances on shows like face the nation discussing whether or not he would be running for president in 2000. And of course he denied that he would, and we know that didn't happen. Uh, but Jesse Ventura being a part of this is, is a really big, probably the biggest thing that stands out about the entire show. We should mention that this is, I believe the first time that three major titles, the world, the intercontinental and the tag titles all changed hands on the same pay-per-view. I don't think they did that again for like 10 years. Where would you rank SummerSlam 99 out of all the SummerSlams? You know what, Conrad? I didn't think that this one held up to the test of time. I didn't think it was that great. I didn't think it was anything special. So it's, it's definitely in the middle, probably 
uh, the the lower half of SummerSlams in my book. It's a big deal, yes, with Jesse and all that other good shit. But when you go back and watch it, um, for me, as I like to say, I don't know that it held and withstood the test of time. Well, we hope that this episode stands the test of time. We'll be back next week with SummerSlam 89. We're going to do a watch along. But before we do, I want to fire off some questions we took to Twitter and said, hey, if you've got a question for Bruce here about SummerSlam 99, join the conversation and tweet us. And you can do that for all of our upcoming shows. Just check out at Pritchard Show on Twitter or Facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle and fire your questions off. Bruce, let's do these rapid fire. Are you ready? Fire. Teacock eight wants to know, was China ever really considered for the main event? At one point, she won the number one contender spot leading up to this. What say Bruce? No. Bad money. Slim wants to know how impressive was Billy Gunn the Monday prior to this show when he cut a promo on the rock in the ring after hitting the famous sir and then rubbed his ass in his face. It was just good TV. How far do you think he could have gone if the circumstances were different? Well, I think that if he were able to go any length of time, um, I think that Billy would have been a great top single star, but I think there are some guys that are going to be great stars on their own and some that are a part of a package. And to me, Billy was great as a package. Lone Lee wants to know what would it sound like if Paul bear saying sexual chocolate, Mark Henry's theme song. Sexual chocolate. Oh yes. You're like a, my adult version of a speaking spell uh, on air. Isaac wants to know <laughs> what? Why do you think Minneapolis hasn't had any of the big four pay-per-view since this one? I don't know. We were just there. So I, I, I can't answer that because it's a beautiful city with a beautiful facility as well. So I, I don't know, man. I think that, uh, lots of, lots of discussion, rumor and innuendo that a few times it's come close to landing WrestleMania. It has, and for WrestleMania, I don't know. But then again, shit, there's, there is a lot of things to do in Minneapolis. So I, I just don't know. I don't know if they haven't been in the bidding and, and offered enough uh, what that holdup is, but they haven't just been there. I forgot how beautiful Minneapolis is. And um, in the winter, it's not someplace I want to visit, but it is a beautiful place with a beautiful facility. Flying Coffin wants to know who's throwing Steve those beers and how are they so shockingly good at it? That was always Mark Eaton, who was the timekeeper. And it took a little while for him to get good at the timing. And, uh, but yes, that was, that was Mark Eaton. And Steve was, Steve was pretty damn good at catching them, but Mark was absolutely very accurate. Uh, lots of questions about the couch that was brought out for the Main Street Posse. They, a lot of people loved that touch. Like Alex Lauk, he wants to know whose idea was that? I don't probably Russo's, you know, where that couch was from couches are us. Conrad, that'd be stupid. It's from gallery furniture in Houston, Texas, man. What's the rest of the pitch? You can't just say that you got to do the whole thing. Well, there's a section in gallery furniture that is couches are us. And of course we picked it from there, but no, 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 no. I'm saying. Fine. 
Where is gallery furniture? You have a little rant about this. Oh God. 6,006, 45 North between Tidwell and Parker. Lots of people. Gallery want to furniture. We really will save you money. Ken Shamrock is a hot topic. Every time we bring him up because people want to know why is he not in the hall of fame? Uh, I'm pretty sure he's suing the company. I don't think that if you're in an active lawsuit, you get to strut ass on stage and, and be put in the hall of fame. Fair to say. Yeah, I don't know if he is or not, but I think Ken will eventually be in the Hall of Fame without a doubt. Um, <laughs> Mid-Air Queen wants to know which character did Bruce like more, Mabel or Viscera? Uh, Big Daddy V. I know that wasn't a choice, but Big Daddy V. Uh, Marhar wants to know any good Tory stories from in or out of the ring. seems like she started at the WWF at a late age and was always in a storyline with upper level talent, but overall she was largely forgettable. I love that at 30 some odd years old, that's a late age. Um, you know, Terry was just so even keel and really easy to work with, willing to do any and everything always had ideas. I, I just think that by the time that she got to us, her injuries from Japan and everything slowed her down a little bit. And uh, great girl. I mean, I'd, her and her significant other, we used to go and get sushi all the time because she lived she lived on a boat and like a houseboat type gimmick. And her dream was to open up a cabaret in Oregon. And I think that when she left us, that's what she did. Brian writes, I believe this is the last time we ever saw the smoking skull belt. Why was it ever used after this? I've heard people online say that Vince never knew Austin was actually going to debut the title in 98 and was upset when he saw it. I would find it hard to believe that Vince didn't know. I think that at the time though, after it went away that Vince felt, let's keep it on, you know, the championship and make the championship what people want to go for, not a character deal. Personally, I like the smoking skull belt, but I also think that, uh, you're going after a championship and that it should be a uniform look, not an individual look. The side plates, when you are the champion, love it. That's good stuff, but don't customize the entire thing. Uh, Mr. Moran wants to know the next sign on raw was the start of a new era in the WWF as it was the debut of Lillian Garcia. How did she start out? And how do you think she ranks with the all-time announcers? Well, Lillian was a part of the Univision talent search. So we had interviewed Lillian and she had tried out to be an interviewer with us on Univision. Uh, She obviously was bilingual and could sing and do a lot of different things. So in looking at the auditions and hearing Lillian speak both English and Spanish, but also hearing her sing. Vince looked at that and thought, hey, we could use her for television uh, for the main roster and hopefully, you know, maybe do an album with her or something on down the line. So there was a big upside to Lillian. And, you know, I was never a big fan of Lillian's announcing in the beginning She was very green and made a lot of mistakes, but over the years, I think she solidified uh, her spot where, by God, 
she's good to go. Last one. Kent Graham wants to know what would it sound like if Jim Cornette had to explain a kiss my ass match? How about you bend over and kiss my motherfucking goddamn sweaty, hairy, stinky ass. Put some double cheese extra onion and mayo on a motherfucker. Well, that's it folks. That'll do it for this week's episode of something to wrestle. We're going to be back with you next week. We're going to cover my favorite SummerSlam ever. SummerSlam 1989. We're doing a watch along. So next week, fire up your WWE network and tune in here. In the meantime, follow him on social media at Bruce Pritchard. I am at Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. Our show is at Pritchard show and we are out of time. We'll see you next week. Every Friday at noon. It's your Friday noon main event. It's something to wrestle with. Shaka Khan. Oh, did I jump you? Pritchard. Oh, hell. Bruce Pritchard. Yeah. And then Shaka Khan, right? Gotta get your name in there. Yeah, do it one more time. Something to wrestle with. Bruce Pritchard. Shaka Khan. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on a sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.